But we're going to turn to Psalm 65. If we get the slides back up there, um, we are entering into this season during the summer where we're diving into the Psalms more closely. And so in the Psalms, which we're, we're calling this a rest, refresh, renew, because we're taking that time to pause, to stop, and to rest in the truths of who God is. And so we started with Psalm 145, which tells us these four eternal truths of God, that he is good, he's great, he's gracious, and he's glorious. Uh, and then we moved into Psalm 1 last week, where we were reminded of the beginning of the story at creation that God gave his people two choices to live in the way of righteousness, the way of life, trusting in him to know what is right and wrong and to eat from his tree of life or to turn away from him and to go after our own thing and try to decide right and wrong for ourselves. And we saw in Psalm 1, those two different ways of living that one brings life and one brings death, that one brings fullness and one is blown away like chaff in the wind, right? And so the Psalms have actually been compiled, all 150 Psalms have been compiled in such a way that it is a sort of re-narration of the biblical story, at least the biblical story that the Israelites had up till that point. They were written by various people at different times, the majority writer being King David. Kids, do you guys remember King David? King David wrote a lot of the Psalms, and usually it was while he was on the run from somebody while he was on the run from other nations that Israel was at war against, or while he was on run away from uh, King Saul, the king before him, or when he was running away from even his own sons later in life. He wrote these psalms in, in a sort of what we call exile, meaning on the run, away from home, away from where you're supposed to be. And so later, all 150 of these psalms were compiled in a certain order to be given to God's people, Israel, while they were in their own exile, while they were sent away from and scattered from their home in Jerusalem, and they were in exile away from their home, and they were under the captivity of other nations. They, had, they couldn't go back to the temple where they would go to be close and near to God, God's home. They couldn't go back there and worship him, and they couldn't go back there and read the, what they called the Torah, which was the Bible they had at the time and the first five books of the Bible. And so these Psalms were compiled together to be something that they could memorize, so that they could learn and they could rehearse and they could sing over and over to kind of retell, re-narrate the story so far, that God was a good God who created things, that he gave his creation a choice to live in his ways or to turn away from him, that we rebelled against him as humans, but that God gave a promise that one day he would come and make all things right. So that's, that's the movement of where we're going. We saw last week, Psalm 1, what happened. We, we chose poorly, right? We chose the way of the chaff being blown away in the wind instead of the tree firmly planted by streams of living water where we have fullness of life. But in this Psalm today, in Psalm 65, we hear good news, promise God is still at work in his world. So turn with me to Psalm 65. And while you're turning there, actually, I almost forgot, we have a video we want to show of the Bible Project guys, Tim Mackey, John Collins, doing a way better job of explaining what I just explained about the Psalms, and they have cool visuals, which I didn't have. So let's watch this video real quick about the Psalms. We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience. 
to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here. Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals. You'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain, and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God placed humanity in a garden temple. And here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms, and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope, about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah, or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful, but who's it supposed to be? Well, remember that story in Genesis. After humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh, right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel. Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. 
and he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets. And they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people. This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God. A little bit laggy, but now we know that running a video through the slide software, through this other camera, and then into Zoom doesn't work well. Good to know that. Hopefully you still got the gist of it, right? So we're in Psalm 65. This is a Psalm of David. It's one of the many he wrote. And we're going to read that now. It's only 13 verses. Follow along with me. David wrote, Praise is rightfully yours, God in Zion. Vows to you will be fulfilled. All humanity will come to you, the one who hears prayer. Iniquities overwhelm me. Only you can atone for our rebellions. How happy is the one you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You answer us in righteousness with awe-inspiring works, God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the distant seas. You establish the mountains by your power. You are robed with strength. You silence the roar of the seas, the roar of their waves, and the tumult of the nations. Those who live far away are awed by your signs. You make east and west shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it abundantly, enriching it greatly. God's stream is filled with water, for you prepare the earth in this way, providing people with grain. You soften it with showers and bless its growth, soaking its furrows and leveling its ridges. You crown the year with your goodness. Your carts overflow with plenty. The wilderness pastures overflow and the hills are robed with joy. The pastures are clothed with flocks and the valleys covered with grain. They shout in triumph. Indeed, they sing. Written by David thousands of years ago, but this is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts our minds and our ears to receive your word this morning, to be transformed by you and your ways, and to be empowered and filled by your spirit for your glory and for your purposes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this was a psalm that specifically was written to be sung during a time called the Festival of Booths, or the Festival, Festival of Tabernacles. And what that meant was tents. It was to remind the people of God of the time when they were in exile in the wilderness. Remember when God saved Israel out of Egypt? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years and God brought them out and he parted the Red Sea and he brought them safely through, but he 
He swallowed up their enemies in the sea. And then they lived for 40 years in the wilderness. And, and they lived in these little tents that they set up because if you're out in the hot, sweltering sun of Phoenix and you don't have a whistling AC to keep you cool, you at least want to be covered with a tent, right? And so this was a festival to remind them of that time, but to remind them specifically of God's goodness during that time. That even though they were in the wilderness, living in tents, that God provided for them. Food literally rained from the sky, like that movie Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. It wasn't pizza, though, but bread came from the sky. He provided even birds for them to eat at times. He provided water for them in the wilderness. And so they would have this festival to remember God's abundant goodness, his abundant love, his abundant grace. What does that word abundant mean? Does any kid know? Constantly, you're on the right track. Good guess. Abundantly. Watch my hands when I say it. Abundantly. Yeah, a lot, fullness, so much of it. In fact, Anthony is going to talk a little bit about more of abundance and help us understand what God's people were talking about in Psalm 65 when they would have the Festival of Tabernacles and remember God's abundance. This is just a little illustration, just a funny, simple illustration of God's abundance. Right? I asked, hey, do any of you kids want some water? Does anyone want a drink of water? And all of you came up and just grabbed the little cup, the little cup of water. And then finally, Liam came up and just grabbed the whole pitcher of water. And I still have a whole, well, it's not full because ours at home wasn't full, but a whole big five-gallon jug of water. This is just a little illustration of God's abundance. Sometimes we ask God for things. Sometimes we go to God for things. And he's like, I have all of this water. I want to give you these things to bless you to let you know that I am God, that I am the one true living God. And so I want to give you these things. And sometimes we go to God and we ask for the little things. Or sometimes we expect just something little. And God's like, no, I want you to flourish. I want you to be fully human. I want to give abundantly to you. So this is what Psalm, Psalm 65 is talking about. Just God's abundance. And I asked if you were willing to share, when you guys grabbed the little cups, if you were willing or even could share with the rest of the group, with the rest of the church. And after you were almost done, or even if you grabbed a little bit, you weren't really able, you could maybe share with one other person. But Liam, grabbing the whole picture, he's able to share with whoever else wants some water. So God not only gives us abundantly, not God only, he doesn't just give us us to keep. He doesn't give in abundance for us to just hoard for ourselves. He gives in abundance for us to share with others. We are blessed to be a blessing so that the world may know this true and living God. And that's what abundance is talking about. All right, I don't have any water guns, water balloons, or fun stuff like that, but I know so in addition to talking about the abundance of God, how he provided abundantly even in the wilderness, how 
verse eight says, sorry, verse nine says that he visits the earth and waters it abundantly, enriching it greatly. His stream is filled with water and he prepares the earth in this way, providing the people with grain. God is a God who provides, who gives, who loves. He created people out of an abundant love from himself that he wanted to share and open up to others. So that's the God that we're talking about here. That's the God that Israel would remind themselves with, with Psalm 65, especially during that feast. But this Psalm is broken up into three different sections. And so the first section is really talking about this returning to this abundant God. And then the second section, which is verses five through eight, is talking about how God is working his abundance primarily in his people. And then the last section, verses nine through 13, how he's also working his abundance and his goodness in the actual earth and all the rest of creation itself. And you'll see too in sections two and three, talking about people, talking about the rest of creation, there's some overlap. Because why? Because we're part of God's creation and we were created to care for God's creation. And so we're intertwined. We, we belong together. I was having this conversation with my sons yesterday. They were really uh, just trying to wrap their heads around the idea that animals and people are different. Like, Dad, why do you love us more than you love Millie, our dog? God created our dog too, right? And many of you know I can't stand Millie, actually. But my wife pointed out, Millie doesn't get fed unless I say something. I'm like, did you guys feed this dog today, right? Because I'm still called to care for this creature. This is one of God's creations who he loves, and my task as a human being is to care for his creatures. And so I was trying to explain to them, listen, humans were set apart and made kind of a little bit different from the rest of creation because we were made to reflect to the rest of creation what God is like. We're like a mirror held up to the rest of the world, to the animals and the plants and the valleys and the trees to show what God's like. So we're intertwined. So when we get to those section two, talking about people, he also talks about creation. Section three, talking about the world and how he cares for the earth, also talks about people because we're meant to go together. But what happened, as we know, is we turned away from that call to care for creation, right? We don't do a good job of it. I get annoyed by my dog. We cause pollution in the world. People rebelled against God, and the first thing that had to happen because of that is animals were sacrificed in order to clothe their shame and nakedness. And so when people rebel against God, it causes destruction in all of the earth. This psalm is a reminder that God still cares for all of it, and he's at work to restore all of it. So the first four verses is kind of like this returning, if you will, to God's temple. Remember, they're singing this in exile. They're remembering what that's like. And the first four verses are reminding God's people how good God's house is and how God wants to draw us back into that. One, one person who's read a lot of David's Psalms said it this way. He said, after, after reading years and years of David wandering out in the wilderness, Psalm 65, he draws us right back into God's house. So that's what he says. Praise is rightfully yours, God in Zion. That actually has also been translated to say, when he says, praise is rightfully yours, he says, praise is silent to you, but praise awaits you. Meaning right now, the world is not praising God the way it should be, but one day it will. Because that praise, that singing, that worship, that loving, that looking to 
God. It all belongs to him. He's our hope. All humanity will come to you, the one who hears our prayer. Iniquities overwhelm me, only you can atone for our rebellions. How happy is the one you choose and bring near to live in your courts, who will be satisfied with the goodness of your temple, the holiness of your temple. Did you catch something weird in there, what I just read? Yeah, I know, right? No idea what we just said. We're going to explain some of it. Was it all good? There's four verses I just read. I want to read to you the one in the middle. Verse three. Iniquities overwhelm me. Only you can atone for our rebellions. What's iniquity? Does any kid know? Was it? No? Good guess. Oh, atone. What is atone? We'll cover that one too. Iniquity. Even, yeah, say it. Say it three times fast. That's pretty good, actually. Iniquity. I have a definition for you. We'll throw it up on the screen for you. Iniquity is like sin, but it's not just using the word sin because it's a, it's a distinct kind of sin. It's, it's kind of like its own category of sin. And this is what it means. Grossly unfair behavior. Or, another definition, a gross injustice. So it's when your sin affects another part of God's good creation in an unfair way. So like if you're at home and there's three siblings and there's three cookies and one of you takes two cookies and that means one of your siblings doesn't get a cookie, that is an iniquity. Because not only did you take two cookies when your dad told you to only take one, but now your brother doesn't get a cookie. That's not fair. That's what we call injustice. And so in the middle of David saying, God's house is good. God's at work in his world. He says, right now though, right now though, even though we have an AC working, it's whistling and it's driving my ears crazy. Right now, even though God's at work in his world and he's good, iniquities, injustices surround me. And he ties that to rebellion. Only you can atone for our rebellions. Canon asked, what does atone mean? Here's, here's a, a, a simple way. What is it? The sound that ears making? I know that whistling. Driving me nuts. Yo, not, yeah, not a tone, like a sound. That's, I see what you did there. <laughs> but when the Bible says God will atone, a one word, for our rebellion, what that means is he will make it right. He will make it right for you. So we move on to the next section, the next section talking about God at work with his people. And even in that, we see a connection to creation, right? He says, God, you answer us in your righteousness with your awe-inspiring works, our God of salvation. I'm going to get to this more deeply in a second. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the distant seas. You establish the mountains, right? Creation. By your power, you are rolled with strength. Why? Because the mountains would often be a place where people would symbolically go to meet with God. It also would be a place they would go to for safety if they were on the run from their enemies in the plains and like flat lands and enemies could see them, they'd escape to the mountains. So there's a connection with creation and God caring for his people. He says, you silence the roar of the seas, the roar of the waves, and the tumult of the nations. That's another weird word, right? 
What does tumult mean? I'm not going to make you guess. Let's throw it up on the screen. Tumult is a weird word. It means confusion or disorder or a loud, confused noise by a mass of people. So like if all of us in here all started as loudly as we could, don't do this, please, saying our own thing, having our own conversation, it would just sound like craziness and chaos. It would be a tumult. Adults, how many of you have heard a tumult on social media this week? A tumult on the news this week? A tumult even in groups of your own friends or family this week? And this is what David writes. He says, not only do you silence the roar of the seas, the roar of the waves, but also the loud, crazy chaos of all the people all over the whole earth. While David's likely on the run from other nations who are trying to kill him, he says God is the hope of all the ends of the earth, of all the nations, of all the people. All the people. Do you guys know of any other person who could calm the roar of the seas like he talks about? Where else in the Bible do we hear a story of someone who calms the loud, crazy chaos of the waves of the sea? You guys know? Your Sunday school answer, whenever you don't know the answer, you say this. You guys ready? Jesus. Okay? If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, and nine times out of ten, you're going to be right. Even when it's not, like, exactly answering the question, you're still right. Because the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> I know, bud. I know. It's a joke. Okay, go with me. So nine times out of ten, the answer is Jesus in a Sunday question, right? So Jesus shows up, and he, he's a picture of this thing David's writing about many, many, many years before Jesus comes. And he actually calms the seas one day when he's out on a boat with his friends who are traveling and they're fishermen, and they're used to, to waves and seas and stuff, but it gets crazy, and they're scared. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat, remember? And they're like, Jesus, don't you care? Come do something. And he comes out, and with his voice, with the word, he calms the wind and the waves. Jesus is the ultimate representation, and not just representation. He's the ultimate image, not just the image. He is the ultimate picture, not just picture. He is God himself. But he comes in the form of human to reunite what had been broken. Remember, humans were made to be in the image of God to show the rest of creation what God's like, and we failed at it. So God's word becomes man, becomes a human, and does all the things humans are supposed to do in showing the rest of the world what God is like calming the rage of the seas and the tumult of the nations, the chaos of people. Like since our rebellion against God, we've been in chaos. And we think we are finding the answers for something, but it's just loud, crazy noise. And God, through Jesus, is coming to still all of that, to calm it all. He is what David wrote in Verse 5, the hope of all the ends of the earth. In fact, I want to read that in Matthew. I think it's Matthew 12. I have it on the screen. 
Yeah, Matthew 12. This is said of Jesus, and it's actually quoting from Isaiah 11. It says this, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. This is God talking about Jesus. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Remember the problem in Psalm 65 we read? The iniquities, injustice. This is what Jesus does. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. We'll talk about what that means. Until he has led justice to victory. We keep going. It says, the nations... The nations will put their what? Their hope in his name. The nations, all the nations, will one day put their hope in his name. While that's not fully true today, while so many people are putting their hope in so many other things today, one day the nations will put their hope in the name of Jesus, and that will quiet the tumult, the chaos, the loud, crazy noise of people putting their hope in other things. And that will calm creation itself. It'll actually bring peace to the earth itself. You guys have seen, like, even through this coronavirus time, right? Like, when, when people stop driving so much and being outside so much, that actually we've seen the air clean up a little bit. We've seen rivers all over the world get cleaned up quite a bit. And it's like God has been giving rest to his land because he cares for his creation. Do You know, I know that came at a cost to us as people, right? But it's because us as people, we're not caring for the land the way we were supposed to. Same way that when Israel is taken into captivity by Egypt, when they're slaves for 400 years, the land of Jerusalem got some rest. Sorry, I did that backwards. They weren't in Jerusalem yet. <laughs> when they were not in Egypt, but when they were actually in captivity and on the run from other nations later, Babylon. Remember, we went through Daniel last year, and they were exiled into Babylon. The land, Jeremiah the prophet talks about this, the land of Israel got rest in that season. It came at a cost to the people because they were not caring for it the way they were supposed to. But what we get in Psalm 65 is this picture. We move into that third section that God's caring for the earth in a way that it actually provides for people with plenty. And in both of those sections, this is what it ends with. The second section of the people, they shout for joy. The third section of the earth, verse 13, the last sentence, shouts in triumph. Indeed, they sing. There's coming a day when rest will come both for God's people and for his land, for God's people and the earth and his creation, that both, that all, all the fullness of God's creation will sing and shout for joy and rest in his goodness, in his good house. That's the end of the story that we talk about, that last symbol that God will come back one day. Jesus returns and he restores all things, and the hope of all the people is found in him. Guess what? There will be some who still try to put their hope in other things. There will be some who refuse to put their hope in Jesus. 
and they will not enter into the rest that the psalm is talking about, the rest of God's creation and his people joining as one with him. They will choose to be left out of it. I want us all to hear that this morning, to know that you have a choice to put your hope in today, the loud, crazy chaos of the world and the solutions that it offers, which really just adds to the iniquities and the injustices happening. Or to put our hope in the name of Jesus, the only one who could quiet and calm the storm. And as we do that, we find a peace in the midst of all of it. And we can enter into his presence, his goodness, his fullness, and enter into his rest. What I want to do for maybe the next like two minutes and then we're going to go into a time of communion, and John and Amy will lead a song for us. But maybe for the next two minutes, in whatever group of chairs you're sitting in, or whoever you're with in your home right now, if you can just take a moment to ask some questions for yourself. As a group, talk about this if you're with a group, if you're home alone, take some time to think and pray through it. But the first question is, do you know of anybody in your life right now, maybe who's not in this room specifically, who has not experienced the hope and the abundance and the peace of Jesus. And then pray as a group, God, the spirit who fills us, how are you calling us to bring that to them? How are you leading us by your power to show the hope and the peace and the abundance of Jesus to this person? Take two minutes to do that.